With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We never want to waste it. That's why what we do here is we turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need, talk to knowledgeable guests, talk about the things that matter, try not to talk about the things that don't matter too awful much, and try to discern the times we live in. Let's start with some domestic politics today. Uh, There's a New York Times poll out that's got folks kind of a little bit twittering around. Uh, Here's the deal. Campaigns have ebbs and flows to them. So through August and September, uh, the Democratic Party thought their fortunes were maybe on the rise a little bit. Now, cyclically and historically, midterm elections after a presidential election usually go really bad for the incumbent party. So historically and cyclically, the Republicans should have done well, regardless of anything else going on. It's just the way the system's set up. That's usually what happens. Now, on top of that, you have an economic crisis. On top of that, you have overseas crisis. And on top of that, you have Joe Biden, who's president, who got elected to be not Trump. But once you got past that, it's still Joe Biden, the guy we have 50 years of book on. He's not exceptional. He doesn't exactly inspire a lot. He's just Joe Biden. Sheriff Joe, all that stuff still applies, even though he's president now. Now, there was some things that got through Congress and things like this. But the overriding thing, and this poll proves it out again, is the economy, economic worries, cultural worries. Things like this are going to be the drivers in this election. There's a write-up in Vanity Fair, and I want to read this perspective on it. This is from uh, Eric Lutz. And down after the numbers, he says this. This is Eric Lutz in Vanity Fair now. So not right-wing. The numbers are concerning for Democrats who are trying to hang on to the narrowest of majorities in Capitol Hill in a climate with some of the highest possible stakes. If they lose the House or the Senate, they're not only looking at two years of legislative obstruction, they're facing the unprecedented danger of election denier majority. Quote, nothing less than freedom and democracy are on the ballot, says Hakeem Jeffries, chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, also probably the favorite to replace Nancy Pelosi whenever she passes off the scene, by the way, as Speaker of the House of the Democrats when they get the power back. Concerns about the future democracy among America's longstanding rights. There should be election-defining issues this cycle, but Republicans have capitalized on more bad news about inflation, among other things, to stay on in the offensive, welding a bleak national mood to their electoral needs. Everybody's hurting right now, as one GOP voter put it to the Times. And then down at the bottom, the other big issue over the summer, Roe v. Wade. Um, and the underneath of this, and I don't want to get into all the cross tabs because people eyes roll in the back of the head, but look, polls are only as good as their cross tabs, dig into the cross tabs, see the majorities. This poll from the New York Times had a massive swing in women voters, talking about like a 32 point swing among independent women. Now that's probably really a high number. I somewhat question it, but let's say it's even 20, 25%, not the 32%. That's still a big movement. And it would very much determine a tight election in many places. From Eric Lutz's piece, most concerning for Democrats is the huge swing over the past month among women who identify as independents. By the way, full disclosure, I'm registered as an unaffiliated voter. The same poll in September found them favoring Democrats by 14 points. In Monday's poll, they preferred Republicans by 18 points, even though the GOP remains 
at a step with abort Americans on abortion rights. Now remember, this is Eric Lutz writing this, not me. This is from a progressive point of view. Listen to this quote. That doesn't really have a lot to do with my decision, one voter who opposed the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but nevertheless may vote Republican this fall. Quote, I'm more worried about other things. In all the social media promotion of this poll, the New York Times headlined it this way. Voters see democracy in peril, but saving it isn't a priority. I hate to break this to you, but if they don't have it as a priority, they don't really believe what they're telling you. Here's how polling works. They ask you targeted questions to get targeted answers. Let's just all be adults here, okay? Yes, democracy is in peril. It's always in peril. Yes, this election denial stuff is really, really bad. I would never support any candidate that does not think that the elections were legitimate. And if they don't have really good proof, none of them do, by the way, except in very isolated incidences, that there was any election shenanigans in 2020, then they're unfit for office. It's that simple. But a lot of people don't care about that because they'd rather just get the right kind of people that fight the right kind of battles and tell them what they want to hear in the office. So people, when you call them up on a poll or get online on a poll and say, do you think democracy is in danger because of election denial? They'll say yes. But they don't really believe it because their actions prove otherwise. If you go through the polling numbers, and just like this lady just said about abortion, they care about the economy more. They care about what's affecting them directly. Kitchen table issues, gas prices, food prices, job security. They'll vote on that first and foremost because it affects them directly. So even though they may, in their heart of hearts, believe in things like democracy, they want to eat first, and they want their heating bills to be payable first, and they want to be able to put gas in their cars, and they want to be able to take care of their families. Those issues will always override. So you can headline it all day long with people thinking democracy is in danger. And it is. There are very untoward and unworthy schemers out there that want to do great damage to our country. But that's not going to be a winning electoral issue because the economy is something everybody's really, really worried about. And you can have any buzzword you want when people are paying what they're paying for food and paying what they're paying for gas and worried about the things they're worried on. That's going to dominate the political discussion. So, yes, the Roe v. Wade and the repeal of it and abortion and things overseas like Ukraine and things like legislation that may have got passed or may not have gotten passed. Those are all issues that come up in the political commentariat. Most people, most voters, they're going to vote whether they're happy or not. They're going to go to the polls wondering whether they're hurting or whether they're prosperous. And whoever they perceive to be in power, if they're hurting, is going to get punished for it. And whoever is prosperous is going to put the credit for that on whoever they think deserves it. That's the basics of politics. We overthink this stuff sometimes. So, yes, cyclically, the Republicans already had an advantage. And with the economy now sliding back down a little bit from a brief bump up in August and September, it doesn't look good for the Democratic Party at all. And it's going to be a very big difference whether there's a 20-seat majority or a 30-seat majority for the Republicans in the House. A one or two seat majority in the Senate or a tie Senate is very different than a three seat majority, which would be able to actually get some stuff done. Now, they're not going to get veto proof majorities either which way, because, of course, President Biden's still in there for another two years at least. Let's all be reasonable what's getting ready to happen here. The Republicans are going to take at least the House, probably the Senate or have a deadlock Senate again. And then we're going to have more chaos and more of these people that have these same issues now will have even more power. And then we're going to have to deal with this all over again. But let's go back to the main thing and keep the main thing the main thing here. If you're going to run a headline that says voters see democracy in peril, but saving it isn't a priority, 
They don't really believe that democracy is in peril. Otherwise, their actions would say so. It's just that simple. Turn down the noise. Pay attention to what people are saying. Doesn't mean it's not true. It does mean that your anticipation of this election will need to be fine-tuned to what the voters are actually caring about. More Hertel right after this. Yeah, welcome back to her tale. Okay, she's becoming one of our favorites, but that's for good reason because she is great and wonderful. She has a couple of our long forms on communism and on Machiavelli, her favorite subject. Make sure you check them out. But we're going to talk a little current events today. She's been writing in reason. Amanda Griffiths, she's back. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm wonderful, Andrew. Wonderful to talk with you and your listeners. Yeah, we love having you on. Okay, we got some trouble out in your land out there in California. Uh, you left coast folks do some funky thing. Let, let's just start with this because we're going to be talking about cryptocurrency and regulation here. I, I let's I like to start with honesty, right? I've tried, I've tried, Amanda. I've tried to understand cryptocurrency. I've tried to learn about it. I've I've honestly tried. There's people I really respect who've done really well with this, who know this stuff inside and out. They think it's great. I know other people who there's a little bit of an ick factor and there's some weird, dirty stuff that goes on with this. Just start with cryptocurrency for the folks that just like, honestly, just the honest skeptic people. Mm -hmm. Tell us your definition of cryptocurrency, where you're at on it. I'll tell you where I'm at. I tried. I can't get there. I, I don't want it regulated into oblivion, but I don't really understand it either. Where are you at on this? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, how much how much do you understand fiat currency, really, and how that works? But uh, I didn't say oh, it's true. Um, you know, I, I'm similar to you. We're all beginners because every time we learn something about cryptocurrency, Andrew, the, the, the market changes. Cryptocurrency, it casts a really wide net. First of all, you had this initial cryptocurrency. Everyone knows the name or almost everyone knows the name. Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is a specific type of cryptocurrency. You also have various types of decentralized finance. Uh, you might have heard of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, um, <clears throat> sort of digital artwork. You might have heard of Ethereum. Ethereum is a completely different type of cryptocurrency than Bitcoin, for instance, because it allows creators to build various platforms to build other coins and everyone's asking well why do i even why does this even matter why do i care cryptocurrency initiates not just a new advent of currency competition where people who are in regimes with unstable currencies or currencies that they don't trust can exit those regimes exit those currencies and try out other forms of exchange uh, currency competition in this regard also allows us to really rethink what the way that we denominate value can mean. That's a very broad, very intellectual answer for you, but I'm excited for the potential of the cryptocurrency and what's called the Web3 decentralized finance space. First of all, because of the accessibility options that it provides people who don't have a stable either way of storing assets 
or even uh, when their fiat currency is in a stable store of value. Uh, and I'm also excited for the way that it changes the way that we think about how we express value. Not all cryptocurrencies do the same thing in terms of why they're valuable. So cryptocurrency, hugely wide net, and there are a bunch of different types. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. Uh, Web3 is a whole different beast. That's like trying to explain the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe instead of just one character or even one movie. Let's put that to the side for a second because we'll really lose folks. I'll lose me. I honestly... Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, this is your area of expertise, though, the relationship between the individual, the market, and the state. All economics breaks down to the relationship between the individual, the market, and the state. We're going to readers digest this so even I can understand it and then you can explain it to folks. The idea between crypto and the selling point, you just touched on it, was, well, we're going to back the state off, and this is going to be more individual to individual and individual to market, and the state's not going to be involved. Critics like me, being up front here, was like, well, that's going to be okay for a while, but at some point, the state's going to come for this. And that's where we are now, where it was inevitable there was going to be friction, because when you set something up to reduce the role of the state in a currency you used fiat. That's another term you can break down. This is probably a good way to explain it. At some point, the state was going to come for this because there's no way they, they cannot coexist. They're going to have friction. That's what we're seeing now, like in California, like in the EU, like in other places, the states and the governments are coming for this currency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to a certain extent, they can. There are certain types of cryptocurrencies that can be monitored can be regulated. There are other types like Bitcoin that really can't. But what is true and what you touched on, to be fair, is that when you have states coming for, uh, you know, going after cryptocurrency, anytime you have, let's, let's take it out of cryptocurrency, anytime you have a government, a centralized body coming in and saying, we're going to centrally plan this. We're going to manage what businesses can and can't do with this operation. Then what happens if you've got if you've got people if you've got a stock market, for instance? What happens when when the government tries to overregulate uh, the stock market or private companies? Well, uh, what happens is that a lot of times traders will exit, and that will pr put downward pressure on that market. Now, sometimes there needs to be more trust in the market so people are able to say, okay, I actually trust that this is being regulated a little bit more. I'm going to buy in. But because with cryptocurrency, the entire pitch is we're exiting. We're exiting this other institution, this fiat institution, this, this idea of a centralized central bank setting the price or setting the value of something arbitrarily. When those same regulators come in and say, we want to monitor, we want to police, we want to track these users, that again, that's going to put downward pressure on the crypto market. So anytime, for instance, you have a, hu a huge state like California, a very populous state like California, um, that is denied access to various types of cryptocurrency or cryptocurrency competition uh, and exchange, as there was a bill recently that attempted to do that, uh, you are going to not just have problems in California with California investors and what they're able to do. That bears on the worldwide crypto market because you are you are cutting off 
a lot of potential investors from the and potential creators, right? Developers from the overall market. You're cutting off infinite, really infinite avenues for innovation. We don't even know what we don't know. that gets us to this bill in um, California. Amanda Griffiths joining us. This bill in California, let's, before we get into what happened, let's start with what it is. I'm, mm-hmm. I want to be, we need to walk through this kind of slowly because there's a couple of layers here. AB 2269, um, this was a Democrat-sponsored bill. Of course, Democrat has supermajority in California. What the Democrats want, they usually get within a few minor, you know, sometimes the constraints of the law, sometimes the opposition gets a little wave at when they go by on things. This got pushed through pretty fast. What was actually in this bill before we get to what happened after the bill was passed, AB 2269, this cryptocurrency bill? Yes, AB 2269. So this is a bill that is very similar if your listeners are familiar with, uh, and it's okay if they're not, uh, familiar at least heard of New York's bit license law. If anyone has talked about cryptocurrency uh, and how, how, you know, how easy it is to deal in cryptocurrency in New York, it's not great. A lot of it has to do with the bit license law. There are two main problems with AB 2269. Um, Now, one of them is that it would have forced all cryptocurrency exchanges to apply for and obtain state-issued licenses in order to operate in California. I will break that down a little bit more. A cryptocurrency exchange is a, a platform, any type of platform, like an app or Uh, a a website uh, where cryptocurrencies can be bought, sold, swapped, anything at all. Any, Any place where you exchange, think of any place where you exchange money, any place where you swap different types of currencies. You know, you go to the airport, you have a currency exchange. Cryptocurrency exchanges like that, and a lot of times it's digital, it's on an app. Coinbase is a very famous cryptocurrency exchange, but there are also kind of smaller, more niche ones. And these smaller, more niche cryptocurrency exchanges that are just getting their start are very often those places where uh, they'll carry newer tokens that are a lot more volatile. But before crypto, uh, sorry, before, bit, um, <laughs> wow, before those major. See, now you're doing it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because you got exactly. all these letters after your name and I can't figure it out. And look at you. 
crypto coin, what, okay. Before Coinbase uh, and other, other areas, other platforms are able to scoop them up. So this would have required all of these different exchanges to get a banking license. That would really kneecap these small exchanges because once again, you are applying to the state and these state regulators that don't understand how cryptocurrency exchange really works, it would allow, it would keep them, it would curtail them, cut them off from being able to get in on this game. And then of course it would cut off consumers access to these different platforms and applications. And again, it would cut off their access to yes, more volatile assets, but it would cut them off to those assets in those initial stages when usually if they're going to skyrocket in price, they do so during those very, very early launch stages. Okay. And Amanda Griffith joining us. We need to do one more foundational thing here before we get into what happened. California sure. is not a normal economy. California is the largest subnational economy in the world. What do I mean by that? If, if California was its own country, it'd be the sixth largest economy in the world. It would be slotted somewhere between Germany and India, which is remarkable when you consider sometime in the spring, India is going to be the most populous nation in the earth. Okay. Germany is the powerhouse of Europe. It almost single-handedly drives the EU. This is a massive economy. And to kind of go back to what you said earlier, California knows this. Gavin Newsom knows this. Uh, policymakers know this especially policymakers on the left and in the Democratic Party, worldwide, folks know that if you can get certain things passed in California, it has worldwide implications because of the size of California's economy. That's why things like their regulation of the gig economy, their regulation of crypto, this is not just a U.S. thing. This really is a global test case, just like as if a Germany, a Russia, a China, these other countries are trying to get in on regulating uh, cryptocurrency, if they can do it at California, it will have worldwide implications. Absolutely. And I should have mentioned, by the way, there is, I said there, there were two problems uh, with, with this bill, really. And the first is what we just touched on with that, uh, that limiting, you know, you have to apply for this banking license. That's a costly, that's a cumbersome waiting game, even to be a cryptocurrency exchange. There's something else because there are a lot of people who deal in cryptocurrencies that aren't technically exchanges, right? These are like developers and people like that. Um, now, even there, this the second prong of the bill that is so problematic, this uh, this uh, this assembly bill would have banned all businesses not licensed by the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation. You talk about a lot of letters, DFPI from dealing in stable coins. And again, if you're not licensed by the California DFPI, you're not a bank. So big banks could deal in these things called stable coins and non-banks, these small niche developers, these individuals couldn't. Why are stable coins important? This is an area where I I was initially kind of skeptical about you know, what what's the big deal behind a stable coin if it's just like a dollar. Well, stable coins, and here's where we get to the worldwide implications. This stable coins are kind of like a middleman. 
they allow exchanges and developers to convert tokens and transfer information. If you've got an, uh, if you've got a platform that holds U.S. dollars um, as an asset, which just about every every crypto platform does, uh, they hold them on reserve. Usually, those dollars are stored in the form of the stablecoin USDC, which is the digital U.S. dollar token. It's pegged to the value of the U.S. dollar, and again. Stablecoins are pegged to these more value, or sorry, these more stable uh, stores of value, like the U.S. dollar, and that makes them a little bit more secure. Why don't people just use dollars? Well, partly because it's they're easier to transact. They're easier even than a credit card. You don't need to have access to a bank to have access to a stablecoin, which is great because there are a lot of unbanked and underbanked individuals in this country and around the world who don't have access to lines of credit and who don't have safe access to banks, who don't know that their money is even going to be safe in a bank. So they have been able, for the first time ever in history, to use things like stable coins that are essentially the same thing as a dollar or another type of currency to get in and actually have access to financial independence and to be able to buy things. Uh, in Ukraine, for instance, these things have been a godsend to people. So stable coins are immensely valuable all around the world. They're so much more secure. And again, with stable coins, this bill here would have banned any business that's not licensed by the California. Department of Financial Protection and Innovation from dealing in stable coins. That, if, if you're dealing in cryptocurrency, you're dealing in some level on stable coins because a lot of conversions are taking place somehow through that middleman of a stable coin. This would have basically cut off Californians from crypto and, and uh, de decentralized finance development and access would have been very damaging. Griffith's joining us. Okay, so that's that's a lot of runway to get to what happened. What happened was Gavin Newsom, current governor of California, who it's no big secret has other ambitions, national ambitions, who is running a lot of media laying the groundwork because it's no big secret he really wants to be president of the United States sooner rather than later. He vetoes this thing. Now, this is a Democratic bill through a Democratic supermajority that Democrats really, really want, and he vetoes the thing. But his explainer was telling because of why he actually did what I always tell. I always ask politicians. So credit here. He was very specific on why he vetoed this legislation. But the answer is not what cryptocurrency folks are going to want to hear, was it? No, it was not. This is another classic case of a politician doing what appears to be the right thing for all the wrong reasons. It was a surprise that. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, I, I call him Gavin with the good hair because he does have good hair. Uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom 
did veto this bill uh, that was passed by and, and sponsored by fellow Democrats. So people were wondering, why? Why did this happen? Well, in a statement, uh, Governor Newsom said, and I will quote here from this statement, that it was premature. Oh, well, why? It was premature to lock a licensing structure in statute without considering forthcoming federal actions. Basically, this is paving the way for more stringent federal regulation. Not only is Governor Newsom saying it's premature, and it's not pre it's not premature to pass this bill because it might cut off innovation in the crypto market. It might, it's not premature to pass this bill because it, uh, it doesn't take, it doesn't acknowledge the speed and the, the rapidity of that innovation and the lack of bureaucratic understanding of the space. It's premature because we actually need more regulation and it needs to come from a more centralized body. It's a huge problem from an in foreign industry whose entire value add, whose entire pitch is we are decentralized. We're all about decentralization. And if you kick the can to further and further decentralized body, you're doing what any type of regulation will do in that regard, which is initiate central planning and then cut off that decentralized potential, cut off that innovation that can only happen when more people are able to do more things and have more choices. Amanda Griffiths joining us. I actually, in a vacuum, agree with the statement that he issues here when he says a more flexible approach is needed to ensure regulatory oversight can keep up with rapidly evolving technology and use cases. I agree with that in a vacuum. The thing is, is I can read. I know quite a bit about Governor Newsom because I study him because I do think he's going to be a political force in the future. He held, like we already said, he helms the sixth largest economy in the world. I have to pay attention to how this man governs. I know he's coming at that from the different angle than I am, even though I agree with him in a vacuum there. I and folks like you, even though I don't fully understand cryptocurrency, I'm skeptical of it in a lot of ways. I don't want it regulated into oblivion. I think it's an option that folks should be entitled to have, even though there's some icky stuff that, quite frankly, in a again, look in a in a vacuum, yeah, there's some stuff about crypto that probably needs to be regulated because there is untoward stuff and there is icky stuff and there is criminal activity involved. At the same time, I also know how government regulation works, and you're going to get the baby out with the bathwater with it. Is there an answer here? Because governments are never going to stop trying to regulate this. Crypto's always going to try to fight against it, but at some point, you know, it does have to become fungible. I hate to use that term because NFTs kind of killed this, but it has to become fungible tokens if it's going to be used by the common folks, right? At some point, it's going to get into the area where there's going to be banking, there's going to be regulation, there's going to be financial oversight. And frankly, there should be a little bit of it. Do we have any happy mediums here? Are there any easy answers at all? Or is this just going to be an ungodly mess for time and eternity? It should be a bit of a mess, you know, when people may, but, but so is any type of market, right? Uh, now, when you have people who are criticizing as, as you did, and I think there are, there are valid criticisms of the, of the crypto space, um, and you're, and you're criticizing the, the unregulated aspects of it. 
a lot of times these errors do get caught very quickly by users because you're able to see, okay, this looks kind of scamish. You know, people bring up all the time the recent debacle with these two currencies, Terra and Luna, which were, uh, you know, ostensibly a, an algorithmic stablecoin scheme. Uh, Terra and Luna, this wasn't really a true stablecoin that was pegged to the dollar. You had one coin that was pegged to another coin that was sort of pretending to be pegged to the dollar. This was a bit different from something that's actually like the US dollar token. We don't have to get in the weeds on that, but the idea is that was caught with something with with the speed that is much much more rapid than you say, you know, than than you have scams in the stock market being caught typically. That's not to say that there shouldn't be any type of federal regulation, but what that type of regulation should entail is a lot, a lot of input from creators, from independent investors, from people who know this space and understand it, and who are able to give feedback, give input. It needs to be flexible. All I can say in terms of that is that working with various you know, big centralized bodies is not going to be the answer. Any regulation of this space has to be incredibly flexible, has to acknowledge the potential, yes, for fraud, and also acknowledge the potential for government encroachment and over-encroachment in this space that is supposed to be an exit ramp. It also needs to acknowledge the fact that to an extent we can regulate cryptocurrency, to an extent we can track users, and to an extent for a lot of cryptocurrencies, we can't. And eventually I think there will be a reckoning that comes due with that where we'll, people will recognize there are always going to be avenues to getting around uh, oversight. And the question has to be, do we want those avenues to only be available to bad actors or do we want these avenues to be open to people who are trying to escape totalitarian authoritarian regimes who are using this veneer of oversight uh, in order to cramp down on people's access talking in particular about regimes like china here venezuela where cryptocurrencies have been in, have been an incredible asset uh, in, in more ways than one. So when we talk about regulation, we talk about oversight, we need to ask ourselves, okay, when does that regulation also need to bear on the regulators themselves? Amanda Griffiths, that ties into how you ended your piece that, you know, if you're regulating because it's not a bureaucratic enough regulation, that should be a red flag to liberty minded and freedom loving people. Look, I don't go as far as some of our libertarian things. I understand we need to have some regulation. I just think we should be skeptical and challenging. I think regulation should be like negative editing. You, you have to sell me on why we need the regulation, not the other way around. That's not how we do it. I'm a realist. Where do you see this fight going next? The governor obviously vetoed this. 
they'll probably just turn around and pass something really similar next legislative session because this is California and this isn't going anywhere. Um, the federal stuff may be a while because Congress looks like it's going to probably be split or at the best, very contentious. Where do you see this going next? They may, although I'm interested because you did mention that Governor Newsom is cracking his knuckles for a presidential run. I'm intrigued by that. I do think it will be entertaining, although I've learned my lesson about hoping that people run simply for entertainment value. I'll just put it that way. Um, he's not but, unskilled. I, I, look, he's he's good on camera. He's not unskilled. You can say whatever you want. He's, per, he, you know, he's very progressive. But, you know, California people, people on the right reflexively just knock everything California does. California is a big economy. California's got, they've got selling points. No, you can't just write him off as a candidate. You can't. Not at all. Not at and all. And I'm not as supportive of his at all. I've been very critical of him. No, you can't just automatically write him off on a national ticket because he's going to have some built-in advantages that other people aren't. Some, although I'll be interested to see what happens when he starts doing national media tours and in terms of, in terms of the thermometer reading. Um, that said, where does this go? There is a lot of pending uh, federal legislation. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk on the federal level about what's going to happen with the federal government and, and regulation. I see in the short term a lot of fights going on in Congress about what the government can and should do in this space. I also see because of the inability to really understand and comprehend this industry, and I'm, I don't fully understand it. I, ver I understand very little and I try to break it down for myself and in the process of doing that, hopefully explain some things to other people as well. Because of where I am and what I know, understanding I probably know more than many of the regulators who would be doing the regulation here, uh, and I don't know much, that to me suggests that in the long run or in the medium term, there's not going to be much effective regulation because people just don't understand what they're dealing with. I imagine that might scare some people. For me, I hear that and I think potential. That's great. There's potential for uh for danger, yes. There's also potential for incredible, uh, for incredible development and incredible creativity. In terms of the regulation, I, I've seen a lot of proposals. There are a lot of ways to get around various types of regulation for good and for ill, right? So I'm not sure how effective a lot of these proposals will be, but there will definitely be fights playing out. This will be something certainly to watch in the months and the years to come. That will, of course, bear on any market, uh, on the stock market as well. So people, this is something that people absolutely need to have their ear to the ground on and be monitoring. This is going to be a major factor in any of your investments, whether you're a crypto person or not. It's going to play a role. Yeah, and that crypto market swings wildly, and it's very susceptible to news, and it's very susceptible to politics. I got to imagine every time these regulation things up, that market's going to swing even more. And important people have money in crypto, which means their regular assets are going to get affected too. Exactly. Amanda Griffiths, uh, the whole piece is in reason. That's a good get. Well done. Congratulations. Thank uh, you so won't much. Return, won't return my calls. My DMs are open.
<laughs> um, we're going to link the whole piece as always. Read it for yourself. Decide for yourself. She also has a lot of links in here like all good pieces do. You need to go through the links as well. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Amanda Griffiths, we always enjoy having you. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we can get you back on Hertel again, whether it's on one of the long forms. we got to do another communism one soon. We do. We, we didn't even scratch the service on that bad boy. Uh, but until people hear from you again, let them know where they can keep up with you and find your work. Everyone can follow me on Twitter at Ajax, the Griff, A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And they can also follow me via my contributor page at Young Voices. That's young-voices.com. There's a list of contributors. I'm on there and you'll see all my latest work, latest media. Uh, and I always love to engage with people, get their feedback. And I love to talk about all this kind of stuff. So uh, that's where people can find me. And oftentimes on Herd Tell, talking with Andrew. Yeah, we're going to keep you in a regular rotation because you're great. You bring up interesting stuff. We will link to all that. Amanda Griffith, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a blast as always. Thank you. Now let me see you go off like a ball. Welcome back to Hurtel. Let's end on a good note. Let's go out to OaklandSFGate.com. It is not unusual to see heaps of garbage strewn throughout Oakland. Legal dumping has been so persistent that one notorious pile has its own Wikipedia page. But now most Oaklanders have learned to ignore junk they see piled on the sidewalk, but not Ben Tolford. He's a skateboarder. Unnoticed piles of detrius can be dangerous, which is one reason he keeps an eye out. But there's another reason he occasionally spots treasures in those trash heaps. Even once saved an irreplaceable family heirloom. But in July of 2021, Tolford was driving home through Oakland's Clinton neighborhood where he spotted a dozen binders scattered next to a garbage can and treaty pulled over. And when he flipped one open, he was awestruck by what he found. Each book contained hundreds of Kodachrome slides, tiny photocopies that analog photographers used to analyze images before printing them full size. Boy, here's a generation gap if you know what this is and what it isn't. Tolford popped a few of the smaller slides out of the binders and held them up, trying to decipher the minuscule images, but the detail struck him. Was that a tiger sitting in the back of a pickup truck? That he knew the photos must be valuable, so he decided to bring them home for closer inspection. The collection included an incredibly wide range of subjects, from Governor Jerry Brown sporting a full head of hair to sunsets over the San Francisco Bay. There's even a few tasteful nudes. The frequent appearance of bell-bottoms, afros, butterfly collars, shag carpets, and even shaggier sidebarns told him the photos were shot in the 70s, but the lack of accompanying notes and inscriptions meant identifying most of the people or even the locations was going to be a huge challenge, if not completely impossible. Two photos contained hints. Some had written Raymond Cooper on one apparent self-portrait and the name Aja on the photo of a baby. Suspecting the binders had been dumped by thieves, Tolford tried reaching out to people named Raymond Cooper or Aja Cooper on Facebook and couldn't get anybody back. He was in the middle of downsizing during a move to apartments, so he made a tough decision to keep a few hundred of the favorite slides and throw the Wester away. Once he got and settled at the move, he rededicated himself to finding the photo's rightful owners. That's when he contacted me, hoping I could help track down the Coopers. I'm host of the East Bay Yesterday, a podcast about history, and he wasn't the first person to reach out with a request like this. Dusty old maps and mysterious relics found in Grandma's attic. 
I was happy to help, but before I had a chance, Tolford emailed me the triumph. One of the Aja Coopers on Instagram, the daughter of Raymond, it turned out, had replied and been re joyfully reunited with what remained of the collection. There's actually a picture, by the way, of uh, Raymond Cooper with his baby son, Ahmed Cooper, that's just adorable here, by the way. We'll link to this. Make sure you look at these pictures. I reached out to Aja, pronounced Asia, so I was saying it wrong. Thanks for putting that way deep in the piece, writer. I joke. To chat about her dad's eclectic photos, she told me that the reflection of his multifaceted light, he was a sailor in the Navy, an artist, a businessman, and also a Black Panther. His true passion was always photography. He once learned to develop film in the 70s. His camera became a constant companion, even built his own darkroom. In the 80s, he elevated his hobby into a career, opening a camera and photo supply shop called Sundance on Webster Street in downtown Oakland. That was right around the time Asia was born. See, it says Asia. I had to say Asia because now I knew and I didn't know before. This is why I got to learn to read, kids. She told me she still gets deja vu walking around Oakland to see buildings from her dad's photos, like the Cathedral Building, which is seen in the shot of then-Mayor Lionel Wilson taking a black cowboy riding a horse-drawn Broadway down Broadway. Every time I walk by that building, I think of that photo my dad took. He tells me, and the photo's included here. In the early 90s, they moved to Sacramento. A few years later, tragedy struck. Ray was returning home to work, see firefighters hosing down what remained to their charred home. His stomach dropped when he saw a tarp laid over some lumps in the driveway, terrified it was his family, but peeling back the plastic, he was overjoyed that there's no bodies. It was just stuff. However, he did lose much of his life's work, a massive collection of photos, slides, and cameras sitting in a puddle of ashy water. Ray began to rebuild the collection, but his progress was cut short on May 7, 2000, when he died at the age of 58. He left what remained of his collection to Asia. Asia loved having early access to her dad's photo binders, but in early 2021, she was getting an apartment and needed to clean out some space, so she blocked, boxed up the slides and moved them down to a storage unit, but two months later, thieves had broken into the storage unit and stole everything. And that's where Tolman came back in, where he found him. Now, Asia told me she cried for three days, devastated over the loss, but when the two met up for the handoff, Tolford turned down any reward money. The note from Tolford was, quote, the best gift ever. Getting to see such a cool snapshot of an era of Oakland that I didn't get to experience was enough for me. The editor's note here is worth mentioning. Most of Ray Cooper's photos were found without any dates or identifying details. We've done a little detective work on them, but many people in the events remain a mystery. If you have any tips about the people or places in the photos above, please send the author a direct message through Instagram or Twitter. We're going to link to it. There's also the eastbayyesterday at gmail.com email. Check out that podcast, by the way. Always happy to promote a history podcast, especially a place like Oakland that's got deep and very, very interesting characters in history. We'll link to all this. A good note to end our day. And that'll do it for Herd Tell. Uh, keep those family photos. My mom has instructions that when she dies or if the house is on fire, all her photos go first. I hear you, Mom. I remember. Uh, she has my life chronologued by year. She's very attentive to these things. Save your photos, folks. That'll do it for her tell. Uh, until we see you again, wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world, we'd love to hear from you. Her tell show at the gmail.com, her tell show at the Twitter. Reach out. We've done whole shows just based on what you want to see, what you want to hear, things you think may not be getting covered correctly. We'd love to have your ideas, love to have your feedback, love to interact with you. So until next time, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you real soon for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. So, lemon.